0: Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Welcome to episode one of Think Like a Nobel Prize winner, which is part of uh, my mission to convey the wisdom, not only the knowledge, of some of the greatest minds in human history. And I'm so honored that they... Really, you know, provided me with this great gift, which I hope will be a gift not only for my listeners, but maybe even uh, for future generations yet unborn, to benefit from the incredible, incredible um, accomplishments, but the incredible mental models, the the wisdom, not just the uh, not just the knowledge, which I think is so important. So I thought today I'd start. I'd read the first chapter of my book. Think Like a Nobel Prize winner, now available everywhere books are sold, on Amazon at least. And I want to start with the foreword, which was graciously provided by 2017 Nobel Prize winner, Barry Parrish. And Barry wrote the foreword along with James Altucher, one of my favorite podcasters of all time. Uh, James uh, wrote the second part of the foreword, I've got two forewords. Maybe that's an eight word. Uh, But I want to read what Barry had to write, and I want to encourage you to please check out the podcast. Uh, And also, don't forget to subscribe to my main podcast, which is uh, Into the Impossible. That is available wherever podcasts are sold. So let me start with the foreword, which Barry calls, Curiosity Killed the Cat, But Not the Scientist. What do the nine scientists in Brian Keating's book have in common besides having a Nobel Prize? Perhaps the most interesting common attribute is their insatiable curiosities. In different ways, curiosity is the common driving force the interviewees articulate in their quest to understand the physical world. Each of these very successful scientists has been strongly driven to understand the unknown and the unknowable. Their very different strengths, weaknesses, and approaches to pursuing the frontiers of science and their own lives are revealed through selective articulation from Brian's probing interviews, accompanied by Brian's own very interesting and candid reactions and interpretations. While reading this short book, don't skip the very interesting and short interstitial chapter called The Scientific Method. What inspired Brian to write it is unclear, but its importance cannot be overemphasized. We deal with alternate truths and fake news on a daily basis. Aristotle taught us how to use inductive and deductive reasoning to advance knowledge, and Galileo introduced the use of experiments as a research tool. Finally, Newton, in the Principia, wrote down his four rules of reasoning, which established the scientific method. Now, we rely on statistical arguments to establish confidence in our experimental conclusions as well as consensus as emphasized by Keating. These same principles need to be applied to establishing the truth for societal questions like global warming or the effectiveness and risks of COVID vaccines. Lastly, I conclude with a personal observation. Understanding science is hard enough. Understanding scientists is even harder. As a leading scientist, Keating deserves a lot of credit for also tackling the latter. I couldn't be more pleased to get that. Uh, That forward from uh, from Barry Barish, James Altucher also provided a very long and delightful forward. I will uh, let you read that in his wonderful uh, contribution to my book. But now I want to start with the first chapter, which is really the uh, one of only the three chapters that I wrote, introduction, this interstitial chapter that Barry mentioned, and also the conclusion where I take away and summarize my learnings from this journey through the following uh, chapters in the book uh, with my heroes of modern science. So I start my introduction with a quote that inspired the name of my podcast the other podcast you're listening to hopefully think like a Nobel prize winner. I hope you'll rate the podcast, review it, et cetera. And if you're watching this on YouTube, please do check out on podcast. I won't be reposting the interviews I did here on YouTube, but you can find all the audio only content on iTunes, on Stitcher, Spotify, et cetera, et cetera. And on my website where you'll find a page dedicated to think like a Nobel prize winner, the podcast and the book with free bonus material. So I start with Arthur C. Clarke. The only way of discovering the limits of the possible is to venture a little way past them into the impossible. When 2017 Nobel Prize winner Barry Barish told me he had suffered from the imposter syndrome, the hair stood up on the back of my neck. I couldn't believe that one of the most influential figures in my life and career is mortal, is a human being. This shook me to my core because I thought winning a Nobel Prize would be perhaps the greatest accomplishment one could have and not lead to feelings of doubt and adequacy, certainly, and certainly not the imposter syndrome. He was mortal. He was human. He sometimes feels insecure, just like I do. Every time I'm teaching in the back of my head, I'm thinking, who am I to do this? I've always struggled with math, and physics never came naturally to me. I got where I am because of my passion and curiosity, not my SAT scores. Whereas society venerates the genius. Maybe that's you, but it's certainly not me. I've always suffered from the imposter syndrome. Discovering that Barry Barish did too, even after winning a Nobel Prize, the highest regard in my field and, I claim, in society itself, immensely comforted me. If he was insecure about how he compared to Einstein, I wanted to comfort him too. Einstein was in awe of Isaac Newton, saying, Newton determined the course of Western thought, research, and practice like no one else before or since. And Newton too had his doubts of inadequacy. Compared to whom did Newton feel wholly inadequate? Jesus Christ Almighty. The truth is, the imposter syndrome is just a normal, even healthy dose of inadequacy. As such, we can never overcome it or defeat it, nor should we try to, but we can manage it through understanding and acceptance. Hearing about Barry's experience allowed me to do exactly that, and I hope by sharing that message in this book would also help others manage, including you. This was the moment I decided to create this book. It's not a physics book. These pages are not for aspiring Nobel Prize winners, mathematicians, or any of my fellow geeks, dweebs, or nerds. In fact, I specifically wrote it for non-scientists, for those who, because of the quotidian demands of everyday life, don't have the time often to think about the big picture topics that humans are capable of exploring. But most of all, I hope by humanizing science as well as scientists by showing the craft of science as performed by its master practitioners, you, my listener, my reader, would see common themes emerge that will boost your creativity, stoke your imagination, and most of all, help you overcome barriers that limit your success, such as the imposter syndrome, thereby unlocking your full potential for out of this multiverse success. And even though I didn't write it for physicists, it's appropriate to consider why the subjects of this book, who are all physicists, why are they good role models? Well, I think it's because physicists are mental Swiss army knives, a cerebral SEAL Team 6. We dwell in uncertainty. We exist to solve problems, and we have a diverse toolkit. While we're not the best mathematicians, just ask a real mathematician. We're not the best engineers, again, ask one of them. We're also not the best writers speakers communicators but no single group can simultaneously do all of these disparate tasks so well as the physicist i've compiled here that's what makes them worth listening to and learning from i sure have the individuals in this book have balanced collaboration with competition all scientists stand on the proverbial shoulders of giants of past and present yet some of the most profound moments of inspiration do breathe magic into the equations of a single individual at one unique time. There's a skill to know when to listen and to know when to talk, for you can't do both at the same time. It's often said that you've been given two ears and one mouth such that you might talk half as much as you listen. These scientists have navigated the challenging waters between focus and diversity, between balancing intellectual breadth with depth, and these are challenges we all face. You face them and I face them. Whether you're a scientist or a salesman, you sometimes have to niche down to solve problems. Imagine imagine trying to sell every car model ever made. You couldn't do it. You have to niche down to be successful. And yet, you also have to have diversity of expertise and of creative thought. So I wrote this book for everyone who struggles to balance the mundane with the sublime everyone who is attending to the day-to-day hard work and labor of whatever craft they are in, while also trying to achieve something greater in their profession or in life. I wanted to deconstruct the mental habits and tactics of some of society's best and brightest minds in order to share their wisdom with you, my readers and listeners. And I also want to show you that these men are just like us. They struggle with compromise, they wrestle with perfection, and they aspire always to do something great. And we can too. By studying the habits and tactics of the world's brightest, you can recognize common themes that apply to your life, even if the subject matter itself is as far removed from your daily life as a black hole is from a quark. Honestly, even though I'm a physicist, the work done by most of the laureates in this book is no more similar to my daily work as an experimental cosmologist than it is to yours, perhaps the proverbial avatar, the car salesman in Omaha, Nebraska, and yet I learned as much from them about the issues common between us as I did about their individual accomplishments. This book includes enduring life lessons applicable to anyone eager to acquire skills that will apply throughout life. How it all began. A theme pops up throughout these interviews regarding the connection between teaching and learning. In the Russian language, the word for scientist translates into one who was taught. That's an awesome responsibility with many implications. If we were taught, we have an obligation to teach as well. But the paradox emerges as follows. To be a good teacher, you must also be a good student. You must study how people learn in order to teach others effectively. And to learn, you must not only study, but also teach to make it enduring. In that way, I also have a selfish motivation behind this book. I wanted to share everything I learned from these laureates in order to learn it even more durably myself. Mostly, however, I see this book as an extension of my duty as an educator. That's also how the podcast Into the Impossible began. I view it, as many of you may know, I view it as sort of a moral obligation for scientists who are supported by the public to give back to the public. I don't do this for uh, the monetary reward. How can I... 99-cent ebook book really uh, be expected to make much money for an author. No, I do it because I feel a moral obligation to teach you, the tax-paying public, uh, the lessons that I've learned in words you can understand, in language you can understand, and never, ever dumb it down. And this is kind of creating, as I say, the free university I wish existed when I was a kid that you could attend in your pajamas and incur no student loan debt. I've always had an insatiable curiosity about learning and education combined with the recognition that life is short. And I wanted to extract as much wisdom from life as I could while I could. Now, as a college professor, I think of teachers like myself as shortcuts, as hacks in this endeavor. Teachers act as a tool to reduce the amount of time otherwise required to learn something on one's own. By compressing and making the learning process as efficient as possible, but no more so, I think is the best way to accomplish our duty, our role as educators. The word educator means to bring out of, not to pour into, in its root language of Latin. In other words, there's a value in wrestling with material that can't be hacked away. So as Einstein said, make it as simple as possible, but no simpler. But I also think you should make the learning process as efficient as possible, but no more efficient. As part of my duty as an educator, I want to cultivate a collection of dream faculty, comprised of the minds I wish I had encountered in my life. The next best thing to having them as my actual teachers was to learn from their interviews in a way that distilled their knowledge, philosophy of life, their struggles, their tactics, and habits into a digestible, easy to consume form. And I started doing that in 2018 at UC San Diego, where I am the co director of the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination, in addition to being the Chancellor's Distinguished Professor of Physics. I realized I had an unfair advantage. I was privileged as part of the Clark Center to have access to some of the greatest minds in human history, ranging from Pulitzer Prize winners and authors to CEOs to artists and to astronauts even. As a director, co-director of the Arthur C. Clark Center, I had access to all these variety of thinkers and writers and inventors courtesy of our guest speaker series. And that's how Into the Impossible really emerged. The list of invited speakers was not at all limited to scientists, and in fact the common denominator was always conversations about human curiosity, imagination, (laughs) and communication from a wide variety of vantage points. I realized it would be a missed opportunity if only those people who attended our live events benefited from these world-class intellects, so we supplemented their visits. When they came with podcast interviews during which i alongside eric veery my co uh, the co the director of the rfc clark center uh, and others like stuart Walcow, uh, would go into detail with some of the visiting speakers i started referring to the podcast as the university i wish i could have attended in pajamas where we don't incur student loan debt as i said so the goal of the podcast is to interview the greatest minds for the greatest number of people And in fact, my first guest was the esteemed physicist Freeman Dyson. I next interviewed science fiction authors like Andy Weir, Kim Stanley Robinson, poets and artists, including Herbert Seguenza and Ray Armentrout, astronauts such as Jessica Meir and Nicole Stott and many others. Along the way, I also started to collect a curated subset of interviews with Nobel Prize winning physicists. Then in February 2020, my friend Freeman Dyson died. Dyson was the prototype of a truly overlooked Nobel laureate. His contributions to our understanding of the fundamentals of matter and energy cannot be overstated, yet he was bypassed for the Nobel Prize he surely deserved. I was honored to frequently host him for his winter visits from Princeton to enjoy La Jolla's sublime weather. Freeman's death left, lent an incredible sense of urgency to my mission, forcing me to acknowledge that most prize-winning physicists are getting on in years. I don't know how to say this in any other way, but I started to feel sick to my stomach, thinking I might miss an opportunity to talk to some of the most brilliant minds in history, who, because of winning the Nobel Prize, had an outsized influence on science and culture. So in 2020, I started reaching out to them. Most said yes, although sadly, both of the living female laureate physicists declined to be interviewed. While that was incredibly disappointed not to have any female voices in this book, it was still due to the reality of the situation, and it wasn't for my lack of trying. And I'm going to keep trying. Who knows? Maybe they'll say yes someday. And maybe there'll be more and more female laureates to come for the next edition of this series of interviews. So a year later, I had this incredible collection of legacy interviews with some of the most celebrated minds on the planet. T.S. Eliot, Nobel laureate himself, once said the Nobel is a ticket to one's own funeral. No one has ever done anything after he got it. But no one proves the idea more wrong that Eliot is espousing than the physicist in this book. It's a rarefied group of individuals to learn from, especially when the focus is on life lessons, not their research. It would be a dereliction of my intellectual duty not to preserve them and to share them and i'm doing this with you still if you read my first book losing the nobel prize in which i criticized both the nobel committee as well as the larger culture that has turned the prize into a false idol sometimes at the expense of more meaningful achievement you may be surprised that i've now written uh, an adjacent book with a much sunnier disposition after losing the nobel prize was published some accused me of crying sour grapes They said I was disingenuous, and there's nothing I'd like better than to win my own Nobel Prize. And I always say that one of two things. You can actually prove that I'm a hypocrite if I am offered a Nobel Prize and I accept it, so work to do that. Or you can also say that calling for reform of the system can be done without suggesting we throw the whole system out. We can use the prestige and veneration of the prize to agitate for reform and to live up to what the prize could be. On the other hand, I say, of course, the prize already does represent something almost mystical to millions around the world, and those who have won it have much to teach and to inspire. Why lose that opportunity? This is an important vehicle, as imperfect as it is. Nevertheless, such responses to the book led me to engage in some soul-searching about what the prize really means to me. This certainly may have subconsciously drawn me back to the subject matter, fueling my desire to interview as many laureates as I could— But regardless, I see no contradiction between my last book and this book, because criticisms have always been about the committee, about the process, about the entrenched discrimination that may be present within it, but never, ever about the recipients themselves. They can't choose themselves. So how is it possible for me to criticize them? The process may be deeply flawed, but we can still use the tools that the Nobel Prize provides as a way of learning about the tactics and habits and tricks, mental models, bias, overcoming prejudices, etc. to improve my life, to improve your life. And I hope you will find that as well. Further, as you'll see in this book, none of these recipients were ever driven by the ambition to win the prize, and it makes them an ideal role model. Some of them exhibit exceptional patience, waiting decades between what they discovered and what their recognition came to. I.e., winning the Nobel Prize took decades. So I want to know what it is about people who can endure, persevere, survive, and thrive, and continue to develop new things, in contrast to what Eliot said. These are not waiting for the funeral and doing nothing. Uh, These are human beings that are exceptional, that are working harder than ever, in some cases, to this very day, even just a few years after winning the Nobel Prize. So now I want to share those lessons with you. How to approach this book. This book is not comprised of transcripts uh, of of my interviews. They're actually highly distilled interviews, that, uh, content from the interviews. I pulled out the best bits, in my opinion, exemplifying traits worthy of emulation by non-scientists. After each exchange, I added context or shared how it's been affected, uh, how I've been affected by that particular quote or idea. I also edited for clarity, since spoken communication doesn't always translate directly to the page. All in all, I've done my best to maintain the authenticity of my exchanges with my guests. For example, you'll notice that my questions don't always relate to the takeaway. Conversations sometimes go in unexpected directions. I could have rephrased the questions for the book so that they would more accurately represent the laureate's responses, but I didn't want to misrepresent any context that they provided. Still, as usual, any mistakes accidentally introduced are definitely mine, not theirs. You'll also find that each chapter contains a nugget, a small box, briefly explaining the laureate's prize-winning work, not because there'll be a test or homework at the end, but because it's interesting context and fascinating science. And although the book isn't written for scientists, I know a lot of my readers will uh, will be scientists, want to become scientists, or maybe there are scientists. And those folks will want to learn a bit about the fascinating scientific subject matter in these pages. And this, again, is no surprise from the people, based upon the people that are teaching you these free lessons. So uh, if you're not interested in it, you can skip. It's a choose-your-own-adventure. But if you're looking for more, you can re- be referred to the Laureate's Nobel Lectures at NobelPrize.org. There you'll find their knowledge. But here, you will find their wisdom, distilled and compressed into concentrated, actionable form. And I've also provided custom-made illustrations for my friend Ray Braun uh, that I commissioned him to do for both the laureates themselves and a little juicy nugget, a picture uh, characterizing their captivating science. I hope you'll enjoy those. Lastly, each interview ends with a handful of lightning round questions designed to elicit more deep answers to questions that are provocative or insight into their character to show you what they're like in real life as human beings. Often these questions will reoccur. Further, you'll find several, several recurrent themes from interview to interview, including the power of curiosity, the importance of listening to your critics, and why it's paramount to pursue goals that are quote unquote useless. I thought about collecting all the like with like and pulling all these themes into a separate chapter, but I feel the wisdom will resonate more powerfully with you if it appears within the context of each conversation. Like history, these chapters don't repeat, but as Twain said, they do rhyme. Feel free to read chapters in whatever order you like. I've designed it to be read in order, but you don't have to. You can choose your own adventure. As I say, that will also work perfectly fine. One last disclaimer. Although these interviews are with individual winners, no one did their work alone. Scientists work in teams and the teams have only gotten bigger over the decades, often crossing continents and spanning decades. That only three people per discovery are rewarded with Nobel prizes rather than the entire team remains one of my biggest criticisms of the Nobel committee and process. As such, You'll find not only do I feel this way, most, if not all, of the laureates agree with this flaw in the Nobel Prize. And you'll see I often repeat, as do they, my team, their team, if they're saying, if they're talking about it, or if I'm talking about it. You may find that nauseating ad nauseam, uh, but that's intentional because I do believe it's one of the biggest flaws that we overlook the contributions of teams. And I think actually including teams would do wonders for increasing the diversity of the Nobel Prizes, including more women and minorities. um, And I'll be speaking about that uh, in future episodes. So what will you learn in this book? You'll find no high-level physics here. There's no equations. There's no homework. In these pages are years of wisdom distilled into chunks of actionable intelligence, including examples of resilience, of patience, and of courage. You'll learn how to deconstruct the most vexing problems in your life and see common threads between widely disparate, separated aspects in your life or career and hopefully help you weave them together and find meaning in the interactions that occur, in the occasional struggles you will have, either with the subject that you're dealing with in your life or with people you collaborate or work with along the way. You'll learn why it's essential not only to immerse yourself in the past history of your craft, but also to invest in the future of your field by teaching the upcoming generations of practitioners as well. You'll learn the value of patience, that science has a great deal in common with art, and the value in doing something for its own sake, rather than to receive accolades and attention. And you'll be powerfully reminded to allow curiosity, beauty, and serendipity to bring joy into your life through the surprising cracks that open up each time we turn fresh eyes onto a new problem. Why learn these skills from physicists specifically? First, physicists are problem solvers by design. They're also talented observers of physical reality trained to minimize their biases. And they've done so by being generalists, by pulling tools from disparate fields including mathematics, logic, art, philosophy, some even including mysticism. Finally, their ultimate goal is to make sense of the universe and our place in it, a goal all humans are eager to pursue. The scientific method is the most powerful tool to analyze the physical world around us. In that way, science belongs to all of us. Perhaps most importantly, successful physicists like the nine featured herein all have excellent soft skills. They've had to learn how to communicate and lead, often through trial and error. When I ask my students the most important skills needed to be a physicist, they usually say mathematical ability or maybe laboratory experimental skills. Wrong and wrong. Communication skills and emotional intelligence are the two most important tools among the greatest minds in my field. Whether it's correlated or causative, the laureates in this book have the ability to recognize humanity and that physics is ultimately a science which can only be done by human beings. But if you learn only one thing from this book, I want it to be that these geniuses are mere mortals. They suffer from the same foibles, challenges, and prejudices that afflict us all. Through these conversations, we can learn how better to deal with the afflictions ourselves. Finally, if you learn nothing at all, I believe you'll be inspired. I was directly affected by many of these laureates early in my career, and I was indirectly affected by others among them who had inspired my mentors. Inspiration is a chain, and my ultimate goal in this podcast, in this book, is to lengthen and strengthen that chain. Lastly, I'll discuss my favorite, one of my favorite essays, or portions of an essay, The Crutch of Genius, and it reminded me of a scene in the movie A Few Good Men. Colonel Jessup, played by Jack Nicholson, barks at Lt. Caffey, played by Tom Cruise. He says, you want me on that wall, you need me on that wall. I've often felt that lay people want to know that Nobel laureates exist more than they really want to know what they won the prize for. It's almost as if society, like the fictitious characters in A Few Good Men, sleep better collectively knowing that such geniuses exist, perhaps if only to desist from doing the hard work ourselves. It's a form of absolution and comfort to some to think, well, so-and-so may be a physics nerd, but they were lucky. They had an unfair advantage. They were genetic or financial, birthright status or otherwise. I don't have that advantage. I don't have to do it then. Reminds me of what Nietzsche said. Thus our vanity, our self-love, promotes the cult of the genius. For only if we think of him as being very remote from us, as a miraculum, does he not aggrieve us genius too does nothing but learn first how to lay bricks and then how to build and continually seek for material and continually form itself around it. Every activity of man is amazingly complicated. Not only that of the genius, but none is a miracle. that's from Friedrich Nietzsche's Human, All Too Human, a book for free spirits. Now, the laureates themselves in this book think like a Nobel Prize winner, are maybe not all what you'd consider free spirits, but most of them came from humble backgrounds. But they were able to build solid intellectual walls, showing that genius is often a triumph of hard work, not merely the caprice of fortune or birthright. To me, this is more comforting. What one craftsman can build, so can another. That is our task in this book, too. Brick by brick. Let us see how it is done. So that's the introduction chapter to Think Like a Nobel Prize winner. I hope you'll pick up the book on Amazon. Uh, It's available in every format you can imagine. Please rate it there. Review it if you do read it. When we launch it, it's going to even be 99 cents. uh, The e-book version, at least. The Kindle version. So please pick it up. Didn't do it for the money. Hard to get rich on 99 cents at a time. I'm doing it for you. Please send me an email. Join my mailing list at BrianKeating.com and get the bonus material for this book. Uh, on those pages for now thanking you so much for exploring these wonderful lessons from laureates An into the impossible spin-off podcast think like a Nobel Prize winner till next time any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic Please support the show by rating, commenting, sharing, and leaving reviews. We appreciate hearing from you, and it really helps keep our universe expanding. Watch our YouTube channel at Dr. Brian Keating, that's D R Brian Keating, and join our premieres Tuesdays at 8 a.m. Pacific Time. Follow Brian on Twitter and Medium, and support us on Patreon at Dr. Brian Keating. For exclusive content, visit Brian Keating's website and sign up for his informative newsletter at briankeating.com. Into the Impossible is produced with the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination in the Division of Physical Sciences at the University of California, San Diego. Produced by Stuart Valko and Brian Keating.